Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, looking at verses 9 through 20 this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1028. I've entitled today's message, The Glory of the Risen King. In just a moment, we'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we will consider this text together. All right, let's bow together now. Our Lord, we thank you so much for another Sunday morning to gather together in worship. We pray that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we think of those who are away today. Some are recovering from surgeries. Some are out of town due to funerals. Many are away um, on a, on a uh, Christian retreat this weekend over at Camp Barakel. And Lord, some of them are tuning in this morning online. We pray that as they listen to the congregation sing, as they hear the scriptures read, as they now hear your word expounded, that they would be blessed. We pray that you would use your word to bless those who are here in the building today as well. Lord, we pray that you would work your word into our hearts. We pray that it would do its work inside of us. We pray that we would walk away from this place a changed people. We pray that you would be glorified in this hour. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, our culture abounds in images of Christ. And we're exposed to these images from the time that we are born forward. In fact, virtually every children's Bible on the market includes pictures of Christ woven within its leaves. And in many church buildings, we also have stained glass windows depicting images from Christ's life. Painters by the thousand have also given us images of Christ. Think of the famous uh, photo, or excuse me, the famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci. It's called The Last Supper. And there we see Jesus sitting at a Western-style table, and all of his disciples are gathered around. They're preparing to observe the First Lord's Supper. Or more recently, there is Warner Solomon's 1940 painting entitled The Head of Christ. Everyone has seen this one. It's a close-up of Jesus' face, and his eyes are looking up toward heaven. More than half a billion copies of that painting have been sold. Many actors have also portrayed Christ on film. Uh, think of Jim Caviezel in the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, or more recently of Diago Morgado in the 2014 film, Son of God. Christ has even been rendered as a cartoon character in popular shows like The Simpsons and Family Guy. And so images of Christ are ubiquitous in our culture. And every one of these depictions follows the same basic template. In all of them, we see a Christ who is weak, he's frail, his skin is pale, his hair flows, his facial features are almost feminine. If he speaks, he speaks with a very soft voice. This is the image of Christ which has predominated Western culture for generations. And friends, I fear that the constant bombardment of these kinds of images is negatively impacting our view of Christ. How could it not but impact our view of Him? I'm afraid that too many Christians look at Christ this way. 
that he is, is weak, that he is, is timid, that he, he is not bold in his speech. And I fear that our, our image of Christ is not correct, and I fear that this also has a negative impact on the way that we are living our Christian lives. For you see, if your view of your Savior is, is of a man who is weak and sickly and soft-spoken and timid and all of these things, then, of course, as one of his disciples, you're going to mirror that image. And you, too, will be timid in your Christian life. So I think that there is a real potential here for a negative impact on us. Which means that we need to have our view of Christ reshaped. We need the scriptures to reshape them for us. I believe we need a new image of Christ in our minds, one that accurately reflects who our Lord Jesus is. And friends, we find that in today's text. We are in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. This passage gives us a picture of Christ that truly reflects who he is. It's an image that has the power to reshape the way we live our Christian lives. Now, as far as this text is concerned, it breaks down into three parts. In the first section... Uh, we, uh, we get a description of the man who got to see the image of Christ firsthand. Then in the second part, we are given a description of the image itself. And then finally, in the third part, we see how it should impact our daily Christian life. So these are the, the three steps that we'll take this morning. Beginning with that first one, let's see who got to see this image of Christ originally. Verse 9 tells us the answer it was John. It was John. That's John the Apostle, the one who wrote the book of Revelation. But you'll notice here, as, as John begins setting the table, preparing us for this stunning image of Christ, he doesn't invoke his title as an apostle to, to prepare us. Instead, he invokes a much more personal title. He calls himself John, our brother, our brother. Here John is hitting upon a wonderful spiritual truth. You see, friends, when we become Christians, we aren't just reconciling with God. We're also becoming part of a great spiritual family. Ephesians chapter 2 describes it as the household of God. To become a, a Christian is to enter into this household. And in this great household, God is our father, Christ is our elder brother, and then every fellow Christian is also a sibling of ours under God in Christ. And friends, this being a spiritual family, it also extends beyond geographic and ethnic and even temporal bounds to encompass every single fellow believer on earth and in heaven, past, present, and future. We are all bound together into one spiritual family. And while each of us may have different roles and responsibilities in this family, like some might be called apostles, some might be pastors and teachers, some might be faithful lay people, yet those differences in role are not ultimate. What's ultimate is our spiritual unity in Christ as brothers and sisters. And so that's how the Apostle John sets himself up here. Before telling us about the Christ that he witnessed, he reminds us that he's our brother, member of this great 
spiritual household. But then he goes on to say he's more than just a brother. He's also a partner. You see that in the verse. The word translated partner here means one joined in common cause with another. So not only is John spiritually bound to us as our brother in Christ, but he is also joined to us in common cause with Christ. And he describes a threefold partnership here. He says he is our partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. So let's take those one at a time. First, he says he's our partner in the tribulation. That's the translation of a Greek word pronounced philipsis. It means affliction or distress or suffering. He's explaining here that, that he is our partner in suffering. See, friends, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's what the scriptures teach us. And for some, that may be government-imposed persecution. For some, it may just be the pain of alienation from friends and family who do not share your love for Christ. But to be a Christian is to experience hardships, spiritual hardships, and physical sufferings even. And John wants us to know here that he is both our brother and our fellow sufferer in the cause of Christ. And in fact, friends, John suffered more than any of us for Christ. According to an early church father named Tertullian, the apostle John was tortured with boiling oil and survived. And then later on in verse 9, he tells us himself that as he writes the book of Revelation, he's on the island of Patmos, and he's there on account of the word of God and on the testimony of Jesus. Now, the island of Patmos was a prison colony in the ancient world, like Alcatraz in our country. This is where people were exiled after they committed a crime. And what was John's crime? He tells us his crime was telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ, calling for repentance and faith in God through him. So surely John knew the meaning of affliction, and he affirms here he is our brother and our partner in it. But then next he says he's our partner in the kingdom, in the kingdom. Now back in verse 6 of this chapter, John had explained that one of Christ's works is to take all of the individual redeemed people out of the world and to bring them together into a kingdom. So we are one great spiritual household. We're also a spiritual kingdom under the rulership of Christ. But friends, one day this spiritual reality will also become physical reality as our Lord returns to earth, takes his throne on the earth, and establishes his kingdom over all the nations of the world. As I explained last week, friends, this is also the great hope of the church. Our hope is in the fact that our Lord Jesus is coming back. He's going to rescue us. He's going to judge the world of unbelief and then establish a kingdom of righteousness over all things. And so what John is saying here at the start of the passage is, listen, I, John, am the one who saw these amazing revelations of Jesus. I, who am your brother, I, who am your partner, your partner in suffering, and your partner in this future hope. And then there's a third partnership. He says, 
your partner in the faithful endurance. This could also be translated as perseverance. This is enduring hardship without complaint. See, perseverance is one of the key marks of a genuine disciple of Christ. When the afflictions start to come, Christ's real, true people, they don't run away. They don't forsake their Lord. They persevere joyfully through the afflictions because they have that future hope held before them. They do make it to the end. And what's interesting about the uh, grammar of the original language here is that the definite article, the, only appears at the start of the statement. So he says, literally, I, John, am your brother and your partner in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance. What he's doing there is binding all three of those together into a single experience. See, this is the nature of the Christian life. It's a life of affliction, of hope, and of perseverance until the realization of that hope. That is the Christian life. And so John is saying, listen, I'm the one who received these revelations. I, John, who am your spiritual brother and your partner in the cause of Christ, your partner in the whole of the Christian experience, all of it, from the suffering to the hope to the perseverance, all of it we share. And then he adds that one last little statement. He is all of these things in Christ, in Christ, reminding us, that our Christian lives are empowered by Christ. It is only by virtue of our spiritual union with Christ that we are able to fulfill all that He would have for us. It's by our union with Him that we persevere in our faith, that we see our hope realized. And it's by Christ we are all spiritually united to one another in this great family. So as John here sets the table for us, preparing us for the images that he's about to reveal, he wants us to know these things about him. He is our brother. He is our partner in the Christian life. And why does John want to emphasize all of this as, as he gets started here? Well, he wants to do this in order to build our trust. He's building our trust you see, my friends, we are naturally skeptical of those who are strangers to us. And isn't that true? When a stranger rings your doorbell in the middle of the day, what do you do? I know what you do. You close your curtains, you turn off your light, and you take a flying leap behind your couch, right? Because you're going to pretend that you're not home. You are skeptical of strangers. Maybe some of you are brave enough that you'll go to the door you know you can't escape this. So you go to the door and you open the door, but you give that person the look. Like, I don't know who you are. I don't know why you're on my stoop. And I don't know what your motives are here. And we are just naturally skeptical of people we don't know. But that's not the case with our family and friends, is it? We trust family and friends. That's why I'm constantly seeing questions posted by people on Facebook What's the best baby formula? What are the best strollers? Where's the best place to buy a steak? Why are they doing that? Well, because they want to pull their family and friends. That's why they do it. They trust the people they know. 
And so they're going to solicit their advice, and then they'll probably take their recommendations. You see, we're skeptical of those we don't know. We trust the people we do know. And so as John prepares to tell us about all of the things that he saw and heard related to Christ, he begins by reminding us he's a man that we know. He's a man that we can trust. He's family. He's a fellow Christian. He's a partner with us in every aspect of the Christian life. It's suffering. It's hoping. It's persevering. All of it. And friends, this verse is yet another instance of God's grace to us. First, that God through Christ should reveal such amazing truths to John and that he should record them for our benefit, but then also that God in Christ should prompt John to remind us of the relationship that we have with him so that we will trust the things that he says. That's the point of all of this in the opening few verses. But friends, now that we are ready to receive the revelations that he received, now that we know we can trust him, let's take a look at what he saw and heard. First of all, verse 10, John explains how these revelations came to him. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Or it could be translated, I came to be in the spirit on the Lord's day. Here's what that means. It was a Sunday when John received all of these things. Sunday is the Lord's day. It's possible that John was even in the act of worship. Sunday is the day when God's people worship him. So perhaps he was singing and, and praying and meditating on Scripture when the revelations came. And here's how they came to him in the Spirit. This means that while perhaps while he was in the act of worshiping God on Sunday, God the Holy Spirit came down upon him in a mighty way. And though John was still on the island of Patmos, he could no longer see the things of Patmos. He could no longer hear the things of Patmos. Now it's as if he was in a trance or he was having a vision. Now his entire field of experience is heavenly in nature. This is what's happening to John. It's Sunday. He is being put into a God-given vision of heaven. And now he tells us, all that he saw and heard. In fact, we see his first experience is hearing something. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So now that he's in this vision state, physically in Patmos, spiritually, or in his mind's eye at least, in heaven, First experience is a sound behind his head. And it's not a whisper, it's a loud voice. He compares it to a trumpet. It's loud and it's clear. And what does the voice um, say to him? Well, the voice says, verse 11, Write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So he hears the voice behind him. The voice is saying to him, record everything you see and hear from this point on. Record it. Why does he want John to record it? Because he wants 
John to create a permanent record of it. That's the point of writing things down. You have a perfect record. And then he wants that record sent off to the seven churches of Asia. Remember, these seven churches are simply representative of all the churches of Christ. So John will write it down. John will send it off to the seven churches of Asia. They will send it from there. This revelation is for all the churches of Christ. It's for every single believer. And so now we come to verse 12. Finally, John turns around to get a good look at the voice speaking to him. And he says, I turned to see the voice, and on turning, here's the first thing he saw, I saw seven golden lampstands. Okay? So imagine seven candelabras. They start at the ground, they reach up into the air, probably higher than John's head, made of pure gold. There are seven of them. And imagine them in kind of a, a circular arrangement. That's the first thing that John sees. But then he sees something else. He sees something in the midst of the lampstands, or as chapter 2 will explain, someone walking among the lampstands. It says, verse 13, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So they're in the midst, they're walking among those great lampstands. One like a son of man. This means that the figure speaking to him was a man. To call him a son of man means he was a man. But there's also more significance to it than that. You see, in Daniel chapter 7, the prophet Daniel was also given a heavenly vision. And he also saw a figure in heaven. And I want you to listen to what he described in his vision. Daniel 7 says, quote, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, now here's the phrase, a son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So centuries ago, Daniel had received a heavenly vision, and he saw a figure, and he called it the Son of Man, and he said the Son of Man was the Messiah, the one appointed by God to be the king, the ruler over all. And now the Apostle John, all these centuries later, he's given a heavenly vision. And he says, here's what I see. I see a son of man. It's the same figure. It's the same figure. He too is getting a glimpse of the Messiah. Now John goes to describe his appearance more fully. Verse 13, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, these are the vestments of a high priest. And so this, this figure, this one with the voice of a trumpet, when John finally looks at him, what he sees is a stunning figure of a man. And he knows immediately this man is a king. He has glory. He has authority, power. He's a king. But more than that, he's also a great high priest, dressed in the vestments of a priest. 
Now look at verse 14. He further describes the man. It says, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. This speaks to the great age and wisdom of the man. And significantly, back in Daniel chapter 7 again, God was said to have white hair. And now here, the Son of Man has white hair. And so this figure that John is privileged to see, this figure is divine as well as human. He is God as well as man, king and priest, ancient and wise. And then the second part of verse 14, it says, And his eyes were like a flame of fire. This speaks to his role as a judge. You see, those piercing eyes, they see all things and they know all things. They bring all things hidden in darkness to the light. Those eyes also test every work, the way that a fire in a furnace tests the purity of a metal. He is determining the value of each work. And just like in that furnace, all that pass the test are further refined. All that do not pass the test are burned up. See, these are the eyes of a judge. And so this figure, he is divine and human. He is a king and a priest. He is ancient and wise, and he is a judge. And then verse 15, another description. His feet were like like burnished bronze, refined in a fire. Clear allusions here to Daniel chapter 10 and Ezekiel chapter 1. This description speaks of the power, authority, and especially of the worth of this individual. And then his voice again, second part of verse 15. His voice was like the roar of many waters. So, verse 10 said he had a voice like a trumpet. Now, he has a voice like a rolling ocean. A voice that is deep and powerful. A voice that that rolls with the speaking. And then in verse 16, it says, In his right hand, he held seven stars. Speaking of his control or his sovereignty over those stars. And then from his mouth, verse 16 says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now this image also has rich Old Testament antecedents. It speaks of the efficacy of his voice. In other words, the voice of this figure doesn't just sound powerful, it is powerful. This voice has the ability to kill and to make alive, to build up and to destroy. It has the ability to accomplish all that God decrees. It's a strong, effective voice. And then end of verse 16, his face. It says, his face was like the the sun shining in full strength. Now, if you ever tried staring at the sun with your naked eyes, I would not recommend it. In fact, the sun is so bright, so powerful, that if you were to stare at the sun for just 90 seconds without a filter, it would permanently destroy your eyes. And here John says when he looked into the face of the Son of Man, it was brighter than the sun at full strength. 
Friends, this speaks of the unapproachable holiness of the Son of Man. What an experience here John has had. One moment he's in a prison colony. The next moment he has been transported spiritually into the realm of heaven. And now in heaven he sees a circle of lampstands and walking amongst the lampstands this figure too brilliant to describe. A figure with with a face brighter than the sun, with eyes like flaming torches, with hair like snow, one who is divine and human, ancient and wise, one who is a king and a priest and a judge, all wrapped into one. What an amazing figure. Now in verse 17, John tells us how he reacted to the image that he saw. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. One look at this, he was out cold on the ground. Friend, if you had been there, you would have had exactly the same experience too. To see this incredible being, so bright, so big and powerful, to have a voice mightier than the ocean, you would have fallen down as a dead man too. But then look what happens next. It says, but then he, that is the Son of Man, he laid his right hand on me. That's a gesture of friendship. He had fallen down dead, but now the Son of Man is is holding on and lifting him back up. And then he offers these words. He says, fear not, fear not. That means, I know, John, that I am a, a terrifying figure. You've never seen anyone like me before, and you never will again. There's no one like me. But John, don't be afraid of me, because I'm not your enemy. I'm your friend. I'm on your side. I'm your champion. Be brave when you are near me. Don't be scared. Now, who is this figure? Who is this Son of Man? Well, he identifies himself in verses 17 and 18. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last. Now, that's the same title that Jesus had in earlier verses. And then he goes on, and I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. So we know who this is. The Son of Man, this great figure that John witnessed, the one that made him fall down like a dead man, this is our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who it is. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The one who humbled himself, took on human flesh so that he was simultaneously God and man. The one who lived on this sin-cursed earth, who died, went into a tomb, rose again the third day, never to die again, then ascended into heaven, sat at his Father's right hand. And from there, he is our great high priest and one day shall be the judge of all the world and the king of the kingdom of God. This is Jesus depicted in Revelation chapter 1. And friends, this Jesus would say to us, fear not. Fear not. And he adds this, verse 18b, 
I have the keys of death and Hades. That means he has authority over both the state of death and the place of death. You see, by virtue of his own death and resurrection, Christ achieves sovereignty over death and hell so that we need not fear Christ. And because of Christ, we need not fear death or judgment either. So, friend, do you see how a proper image of Christ can impact the Christian life? If your image of Jesus is the cultural Jesus, the, the weak, pale, thin, effeminate, soft-spoken Jesus, if that's your Jesus, you're going to approach the Christian life with a lot of fear and timidity, you're not going to be bold in your witness. How could you be with a champion like that? But my friend, if this is your Jesus, the one who really exists, a Jesus with eyes like torches and a face like the sun, a Jesus with a voice that rolls like thunder, whose voice is like oceans and trumpets, if your Jesus is like this, one who holds seven stars in his hand, you will not live in fear. This one is your champion. He's the one who stands beside you. He's the one who saved you and intends to keep you secure until that day when you see him face to face. If you believe in a Jesus like this, you will be bold in your witness. You will be courageous in your Christian life. You will be committed to holiness in your own character. That's what having a Jesus like this will do for you. But then we move into verse 19. We find greater confidence still is available to us. Jesus says to John, Write therefore the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. You know, that verse gives us a good outline of the whole book of Revelation, the things that are. There are some chapters describing the present state of things, and then things that are yet to come, future prophecies. It's a good outline of the whole book, but I don't want to draw your attention to that as much as I want you to see the instruction to write it all down. Write it all down. We already explained what that instruction is for. Write it down so that we have a permanent record of it and so it can be distributed far and wide. What Jesus is saying here is, listen, all the prophecies that you're going to get in this book, every last one of them, they are guaranteed to come to pass. No chance that they won't. So I want you to put it down, ink to paper, and I want it there on record for all of time, for all the world to see. What I promise you in this book will come to pass. So friends, we can live the Christian life without fear because we have a champion like this one. And we can move into the future with confidence because we know that this figure, maybe not the cultural Jesus, but the biblical Jesus, he has both the wisdom and the goodness and the power to bring God's plans to fruition. He can do it. Friends, this should give us great confidence as we walk through these challenging times. And there is no question about it, we are living in challenging times. We are in a time of economic upheaval, historic inflation, savings drained from our accounts. We are living in a time when, when heads of government are accumulating vast new powers to themselves, powers never envisioned uh, by the founders of our country or by God himself, never, never decreed by God. 
in the sense of morally decreeing them. We're in a time of great upheaval, a time when it seems the church in the West is faltering. But friend, have no fears about any of that. Every single day that ticks off on the calendar is bringing us one day closer to the fulfillment of all of God's plans in Christ. God has promised that His church will not fail. He says the gates of hell shall not prevail against His church. He says what He declares He shall do. He assures us that He has the power and the knowledge and the ability to do it. And so we walk through these uncertain times with no uncertainty ourselves. We may wonder day to day what's going to come our way, but we know long term we are safe in the hands of God and that His plans for us are always good. And then moving into verse 20, look what it says. Jesus writes, And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, and uh, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So you remember at the beginning of this passage, John sees in his vision, first the lampstands, seven of them all kind of in a circle. Now Jesus tells us those represent the seven churches. And by extension, all the churches of Christ. Those lampstands are the churches. And we were told that Christ is standing in the midst of those churches. And he is walking among those churches. You see, we have no need to fear because our Lord Jesus is near. He is with his church. He is among the people of his church. He is within his church through his spirit. Christ loves his church. He holds it dear. And he is ever at its side. And then it says those seven stars that were in his hand. He explains those seven stars represent the angels of the churches. Now, Jesus could be teaching us here that every true gospel church literally does have a guardian angel appointed to it. That could be what it means. And wouldn't that be cool if that was the case? Every church has an angel watching over it. There's another possibility. Jesus could be speaking of the pastors of the churches here. The word angel, it also just means messenger. The messengers of the churches could be the pastors of the churches. I'm not sure which is correct, but either way, I think we know Jesus' main point here. It's that Jesus is walking in the midst of his churches, and with his right hand, he is holding fast to the representatives of those churches. This speaks of the fact that he is spiritually protecting them. He's holding them. He's keeping them near to him. It guarantees the eternal security of all who are truly a part of his church. That's what this signifies. And friends, this ought to give us great peace as we go through tumultuous times. To know that no matter what is happening in the world, yet Christ is still here. He's among us. He is indeed within us. That he is holding the representatives of his church in his hand. He has them firm and secure. Their souls shall never be lost. That ought to give us great peace. So friends, as we conclude here, let me ask you one last time. What image of Christ do you hold in your mind? Do you have the cultural Jesus in your mind? The one with pale skin, a slender frame, feminine facial features, his flowing hair, one who is 
who is timid and shy, afraid to speak out? Well, if so, then you are hobbling your own Christian life. Is your Jesus like the biblical Jesus? Like the one we've seen here? A bright, shining, holy king, priest, and judge? The one with a voice of power? The one who is able to accomplish all his good will? The one who is in the midst of his churches, and who holds his churches in his hands? Is that your view of Jesus? Well, if so then you ought to be able to pursue your Christian life with boldness, a bold pursuit of your own spiritual growth, bold witness to those who do not know the Lord, no fear in standing for truth, no fear as you try to accomplish the biblical mission. My friends, let us try to cultivate this image of Christ. And let us all move forward in the confidence that this image can bring. Let's pray together now. Lord, we thank you for revealing to John what you are really like. We pray that this would be the image that comes into our minds when when we think of you. That you would banish from our minds images of Jesus that are unworthy of his person you would help us to see him for who he really is and that we would go forth in strength and courage because we know the real Jesus. And Lord, for those who may not know him yet, we pray that you would draw them near, Lord. Help them to see their need of you. Whether they acknowledge you or not, you will be their king. You will be their judge. So Lord, might they bow to you even now. Might they accept you Might they have you no longer as an enemy, but as a friend, one who will lift them up. Lord, might you prompt them even to call out to you in this hour, and then to tell their story to someone nearby, uh, myself, Pastor Scott, a Christian who, who brought them into church today, that the next steps in their spiritual life could begin. And Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We now have an opportunity to respond, so I invite you to stand with me, and we'll respond by singing all three verses of the hymn, Behold Our God.